welcome back to the Enneagram Journey. My guests on the podcast today are two people that I love a lot, respect very much, learn from, teach, spend the night with when I'm in Austin, (laughs) value, and we're going to spend some time talking about the Enneagram. Nathaniel is a five and Elizabeth is a four, and that's already very interesting to me. And I'm going to ask some questions and answer some questions if they have any. So to start with that, let's talk about how you guys met. We had a mutual friend who uh, brought him over to my house when I was cooking breakfast for a bunch of people. And I was in the kitchen cooking and he, I mean, I think he just liked that I was working hard <laughs> and cooking. And he liked the food. And then we threw a, a pig roast together like a year later. And he cooked the pig all night. And, and in the middle of that, I realized I was watching him put ivy in his hair from my, from my upstairs bedroom. And I'm like, I want some of that. <laughs> I want some of that. And then, but then I couldn't keep up with him all night long. He's always like two rooms in front of me. And then he made, had a dinner a couple of weeks later and we sat next to each other and he cooked this whole dinner for me and my roommates and everybody went downstairs to a jazz club and we listened to John Lee Hooker and made out. Cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's your story about all that? Uh, my story. No, I'd say that's pretty accurate. I cleaned it up. She cleaned it I up. I bet you did. Yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. good. We'll go with that. Um, yeah, that's the rate. That's the G-rated version of it. Now, there you go. Uh, but it was a, actually a pretty G-rated courtship. Oh, it was. Um, it it was. was. It was. And were you guys um, in New York? No, we were in Charlottesville, Virginia. Elizabeth was an undergraduate, and I was in law school. Yeah. So of course, I was delighted to meet a young undergraduate. Sure. You know, law sure. School. Yeah. Yeah. Tall, lily, beautiful, yeah, and yeah. could cook. And could cook. Yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and she was from is from Mississippi, so that was appealing to me. I don't know why, but it was. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, at that point, would you say because you're very different yeah. from one another, mm-hmm. would you say that difference was an attraction? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I think I, I, I think I went to the University of Virginia because I thought in my head I was doing something really radical. And I, I thought it was beautiful, and I thought, oh, I'm leaving, and I'm going far away to this totally different place. And then I realized it was just a different flavor of the South with less good cooking. And so I just felt like I was a little disillusioned that it was just more of the same. It's just a different brand of conformity that I didn't want to deal with. And along comes this long-haired Yankee who was born and raised in Paris, France, and cooked, cooked better than me, and I'm a good cook. And yes, you are. was smart, articulate. Yeah. So the fact that it was nothing like me, except for the cooking, was so appealing. Okay, and what about you, Nathaniel? I would say the fact, uh, you know, I, I'd come from the Northeast and New York, and it was a, I guess, culturally, there's not the sensuality that mm. um, Elizabeth had culturally. And so that was very appealing to me, this warmth and sensuality. I mean, that sounds very cliche of the South, but, you know, the cliche is there. Well, it's there's, also there's not, always truth underlying the cliche, sure, right? Sure, sure. It's also not yeah. what you would think a five would say. Hmm. You wouldn't think a five would say that there was all this sensuality. and <laughs> It's just like right. That's not what you would think a five would be looking for. And so I think part of what's important is that I think we're all always looking for what we lack in our number mm-hmm. to balance ourselves. Not to complete ourselves, Not to fix ourselves, but I think we intuitively are always looking for balance. Yes. And you two certainly balance one another. And I I think that's true, and I would also say that, you know, um, aesthetics are very important to me. True. Right? And so we connected on that level. Aesthetics and Because I found, you know, going through life that that wasn't an easy thing to find. I mean, I always wanted to live in a place that was extraordinary, even if it's just a 
crummy apartment walk right. up in New York. I want it to be maybe, an extraordinary maybe I, crummy apartment. Maybe I have a four wing in maybe, respect. I don't maybe. know. But, um, <laughs> so do you, do you think that your struggles in courtship, because everybody has them, mm-hmm. would be, now that you've learned the Enneagram, would be in any way related to your fiveness and your fourness? Sure. Oh, sure. yeah. Sure. The, the interesting thing to me was, like, from the moment that where I described John Lee Hooker, from the moment we met on, we were always together and we never fought. And so the only problem, really, was his parents and my parents. So my parents were freaking out, and his mother was freaking out. And Nathaniel decided to that all of that drama and chaos was going to... He was going to listen to that and let that be what led him. And I was... And so I felt like, wow, he's not sticking up for me. Mm-hmm. Like he's just gonna listen to all of them and let them pl- let them tell us what to do. And I, so I didn't feel taken care of in that. And it, uh, and I think he was just, you know, unable to get the feelings out or, right. f- or really afraid of the feelings. Mm-hmm. And um, so his fear of the feelings sometimes can feel abandoning to me, but. He's really, he really hadn't done that since. He really hasn't done that much since. One of the things that I, I sometimes say when I'm trying to tell somebody about the two of you, and, and we've got to fast forward really far because you have two kids in high school and all that. But, <laughs> but one of the things I say about the two of you is that there are uh, people who say, for example, about Richard Rohr that he hasn't had a thought that isn't recorded. And I sometimes say about you, although I don't think I've ever said it to you, that this is the one house I spend time in where I don't think there are any feelings that are not acknowledged. So that's because of you, Elizabeth. That's because you pick up on them and you acknowledge them. And acknowledging feelings, in my experience with the two of you, doesn't mean you have to talk about them, but they're acknowledged. Right. So, Nathaniel... How did you learn to deal with acknowledging every feeling that might happen to pass by? Well, I'm still working on it. Yeah? Okay. <laughs> but, Talk about that. Um, and uh, I think living with a four has been great for that. Living mm-hmm. with Elizabeth has been mm-hmm. good for that. So, you know, I have equanimity. I want everybody to be comfortable. and, and so, But that's all a very intellectual process, right? And uh, Elizabeth has been good in pushing me to... Be better about acknowledging feelings. Uh, let me give. Uh, let me see if I can think of an example. I got to think about that one for a minute. Okay, you get to. Yeah. But what I I think you're good at, which I think I don't know if all fives are good at this, but I what I'm value most maybe in our marriage is his ability to hold all of mine. And as you know, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. Like so, I I have all kinds of feelings all day long from minute to minute. And I think because of the equanimity and because of the detachment of a five, they are able to just sit there kind of and hold it. Their immediate reaction is not to go do something about it, to walk away, to fix it. It's just, it's kind of like he just holds it for me and he generally does not go away. Not like a nine that just kind of floats away. He just holds it, and that is remarkable. Yeah. So, so yeah. So on, on that point, so I and I don't know if this is a five thing, but I, I generally have a pretty good sense of what people are feeling at any given moment in a room. I mean, I can sort of I, I'm aware of that. And being a five, I sort of assume that well, since I'm aware of it, everybody knows I'm aware of it, and we're okay, right? And <laughs> <That's> where, <laughs> um, right. So. And where Elizabeth has been helpful to me is pointing out, well, you know, they don't know that. Yeah. And so you need to reach out and make that connection because they're not going to assume that you know. I have kind of a weird example. Like this friend of ours who comes over, she gets mad at Nathaniel all the time because he's dismissive when she talks about cleanses and food stuff and all that. And he gets really dismissive and it makes her really mad. So she was over here recently and she brought something up. And he said something a little dismissive. And then I said, well... She's like, you may or may not disagree with him. And I'm like, well, I, I agree with him, but the reason I agree with him is because I 
grew up with, I actually didn't grow up with women like this, but I went to school with women like this. And I had experiences with this woman and this woman where they talked about these kind of things and it was a really unhealthy situation. And so I have kind of, I get triggered when people talk about that kind of stuff. And she was like, oh, well, okay. And the thing was like, well, that's what I was saying. And I'm like, no, that's not what you were saying. Good try. And I said, I just told Sarah a story about why I feel that way. Yeah. And now she's okay with me having that opinion. But you didn't tell her a story. Right. And, And so then he actually told us a story. And it was something I'd never heard before. And then Sarah was like, oh. Which is so interesting because whatever you take in. So my way of talking about your awareness would be that what you take in goes straight to your head because you're a five. Right. And I think we all think other people are doing life the same way we are. Right. We all think that people process information in the same way that we do. And I think the Enneagram is one of the best helps we have around all of that. So uh, you two are both doing repressed. Fours, <laughs> fives, and nines right. uh, are doing repressed. And so just so everybody's on the same page with us, that means that, Nathaniel, you take in information with thinking, and then you have feelings about what you think. And Elizabeth, you take in information with feelings, and then you have thoughts about how you feel. (laughs) Are you too aware of when you're both feeling, or aware of when you're both thinking, or is it more like a dance? It's a feeling, thinking, uh, like whirlwind. I think we almost get off on this whole feeling slash analysis thing that starts happening and it's so fun and I think we enjoy it too much and it's fun (laughs) it's really fun because there's just a lot of analysis going on and then there's a lot of feelings for me and I think maybe some for you and so we were figuring all this stuff out but then you know sometimes you just have to stop and say but why why are we doing this Mm -hmm. you know I think it's very easy for people in relationship to fours to believe that all of these um, artistic, literal art form activities come easily to them, as if you don't have to really work hard to produce what you produce. You know, people are dismissive, I think, in saying uh, about fours who are musicians. Uh, They just have a gift. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they do, that they're using and working hard to find the right chord or the right note or the right Mm -hmm. lyric or the right... I don't even think that's number specific. I think it's how not all of culture, but most culture is towards artists of any kind. Oh, that's interesting. I think they just... um, Most people think that you're just over there being silly and having fun. Yeah. Just... And you're just not. Absolutely not. Yeah, absolutely um, let's talk about the kids in whatever way you're comfortable doing that. And I'll ask questions based in whatever parameters you put on the table. Your children wake up every day with parents who have a, who have a very common bond about uh, what's right and what's wrong and about authenticity. But they also wake up every morning with parents who view the world from very different places, in a very different way. I think we view the world differently, but I think what we're the same on is that we have trouble being holding a line with strictness. So we'll say, this is what's going to go down, and both of us have trouble holding that. And I think... We don't want to have the fight. I don't know what... I, I Actually, I know with, what it's about, but... But, so that's where we're not good together as a team, but... And, you know, I would would say, yeah, I mean, I think, especially with our son, who is really adept at negotiating and exploiting any vulnerability. Yes, he is. (laughs) Um, Which just makes me, as a 66-year-old woman, more drawn to how adorable he is. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and he's full of emotion and he's ready to go into a fight 
you know, at the drop of a hat if he feels aggrieved or doesn't feel we're being fair with him. And so that can be exhausting, right? And so we have a tendency to back off. And okay. I don't know if that's doing repression. Because we don't, don't want to have yeah. the fight with him. Yeah, I think part of that is doing repressed. Yeah. But, but, but I want to talk about exhaustion for a minute mm. in fives. Mm. Mm. As you go through life with this measured amount of energy that you get when you wake up every morning that you know is going to be gone by the end of the day, do you think you spend some time negotiating without that even being conscious? Do you think you spend some time negotiating what you can what's what things are going to cost you relationally? What relate? I'm so sorry. What relational things are going to cost you, and whether or not you're going to give it? Yeah, I, don't, I mean, possibly. I don't know that I think of it in those terms. But yeah, I mean, I don't like it when something happens that has a negative impact on my relationship with my kid. Right. I, I, I mean, and I don't know, I mean, maybe that's what you mean by costing me. Yeah, um, I, it, it's like if I, if things don't continue to go fairly well, it's going to cost more yeah. intuitively. I think we, I think fives intuitively know that there's a space where if you don't work it out, it's going to cost you more. Yeah. And it's going to cost you a lot to work it and out. So what I, what, yeah. I, what, I find, what I have to do is sort of talk to myself, say, okay. I'm going to hold the line on this one. And I have to have a little pep right. talk with myself right. in advance. I'm going to hold the line. And I'm just going to be really calm about it. And this conversation might go on for 15 minutes. He's going to come at me a dozen different ways. Mm-hmm. He's going to plead with me. He's going to get angry with me. He's going to cajole me. He's going to walk away for a while and then come back and try again. He's going to go talk to Elizabeth, see if she has a different angle. And I just have to very calmly hold the line. Yeah. It's going to be a waste of my time, right? I can't go do this other thing I want to be right. doing. Right. I just have to be present and not get angry, yeah. right? Which is hard, which is really hard. And then the other thing I would say, it, it, it induces a lot of humility being a parent because you never know what the right answer is. Right. You never know for sure. It's like, when am I being too restrictive and when do I just need to let it go? And that line is constantly shifting because it depends on the kid, depends on the situation. And a lot of the times you're not exactly right on it. You're, you know, I I, um, I can specifically remember my mother when she was unhappy. My mother was a five, and when she was unhappy with me, she generally would sit down and talk with me. And I I was easily shamed into behaving, even though I don't think she was being shaming. That wasn't her nature. You know, it was, this is how people feel when you do this. This is why you can't do it. I need you to explain this to me, and then we need to get to a new place. That was pretty much the conversation. But occasionally, she would just say, uh, you're grounded. And I, I would say, well, can we talk about it? Because <laughs> I, I, I would even employ, I'm not sure I understand. Can we have a conversation <laughs> about it? Can we talk about it? And she would just look right at me and say, no, I don't want to do that today. Mm-hmm. And now that I know the Enneagram, I think what she was saying is, no. I don't have the energy for that today. Or no, I have three more things I have to do before I go to bed, and I can't use it all up dancing with you over whether or not this thing is right, that's, wrong, or that's why that that no that strikes a chord. And but the thing is, when I try that with Henry, it drives him bananas because he has he feels abandoned when I do that, and that really triggers something with him, and so he does not accept that. Yeah. So I can't do that with him because then that hurts him. Yeah. And I don't want to do that. Right? Right. I mean, and I have done it and it doesn't go well. I mean, it, it's, <laughs> we have to circle back around a day or two later and yeah. go through it again. So I wish I could do that, but it's, for whatever reason, it's not working. Yeah. Um, You'll figure it, it out. It scares him when I do that. Um, it's got to be a powerless feeling. Yeah. Even when he was a toddler... If my feet started walking away from the ground where he was, he would start to have anxiety. Interesting. So he's always, as long as I've known him, been, he's always doing his own thing, mm-hmm. doing his own thing, very independent that way. But just make, you're there. Yep. There you are, right there. Okay, this is a, a, a question I didn't think of till just now, and you might not want to answer it. <laughs> and so you get to say, I don't want to. I would like for each of you to tell me 
what you think the other's greatest strength is in parenting mm. and what you think the other's greatest weakness is in parenting. Mm. But I don't want that to cause any conversation after I leave and go teach the gig I'm in Austin oh, each yeah, I'm, I'm happy, happy to add to that. I'm happy to yeah, yeah. Good, good, good. So. Yeah. I mean, to me, his strongest is his steadiness and that, um, what were you saying? What was the word you used earlier? Your equanimity. equanimity. Yeah. So he is not going to take teenage behavior personally. He's not going to feel abandoned. All that kind of consistency is just a bomb for me. And I think it's a bomb for them. Sure. Um, I mean, the last thing a teenager wants is a parent needing too much from them and taking things personally, right? Yeah. So he's never going to do that. And that's fantastic. Um, your worst? Mm. I, I, I'll say what I think my worst is. Okay, I'm um, not I think I get impatient and sort of, um, mm. get irritable. Oh, Sometimes I do. I think I'm... Is your, you know, though, when fives are impatient and irritable, it doesn't usually have much energy behind it, frankly. Right. See, I think he thinks It's like you get is. behind a newspaper. Right. I think he thinks, because when we go out and we're with friends and stuff, and I'm like, he's nearly perfect, and he's all this and that, and he's like, no, I'm not, no, I'm not, I'm so good. I'm like, no, you're not. Like, I kind of want you to believe me, Yeah. actually, because I'm not just saying that. So, yeah, he gets behind a paper. That's him being irritable. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's mo- probably more closely related to the story I said earlier where he has some opinion or something that he's saying that he's coming down on that he hasn't told a story, explained it from right. a personal right. standpoint. So it feels unjust because nobody knows where he's coming from and he assumes everybody knows where he's coming from. Right. I'm going to come right to you to answer the question mm-hmm. too. But before I do, I just want to say, you know, my dad was a one. And I, 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 he gave me my first Thomas Merton book, I think, when I was like 14 or 15. Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander. Mm. Like, that's kind of the pebbles <laughs> that were laid out in front of me. And um, later on, as an adult, I asked him why he read so much. And he said, because I don't like to talk. Mm-hmm. Huh. Nathaniel reads, and he crossword puzzles, and he weeds in the garden. Yeah. All right. Parenting strengths, weakness. It's your go, isn't it? My go. So I would say Elizabeth's greatest strength as a parent is her ability to fully engage at an emotional level with each of the kids um, and tell stories that allows them to to um, yeah, which fosters an openness, even when they are not fully willing to be mm-hmm. open. Mm-hmm. They. They hear it, yeah. right? They hear it. So I would say that's her greatest strength. And I would say her greatest weakness is occasionally she'll fly off the handle. You know, <laughs> okay, in, in that her, was very generous. That is sweet. Uh, <laughs> um, in a way that might feel surprising or unfair. Uh, um, volatile. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Volatility. Um, but, you know, it's, it's funny now because now when she does it, they'll kind of give me looks like, it's, and I it's, think it's what's, what's interesting to me is I know I'm not supposed to say Henry's a three, but I'm pretty sure that both my children are threes. Mm-hmm. Which well, is, we know Alabella is because she's, she's, she's done it. your yeah. conference. So it's interesting to be a four with two, three children and a five husband. <laughs> and um, th- so they love to gang up on the volatility, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to watch. Both my children manage that volatility. They're almost on the front end of managing it. They see it coming down the pipe, and they're ready to manage it. Fascinating. It's crazy. And, of course, I hate I mean, that. On, on the bad side. So... Do you know, that, that's so interesting. For, we just have to have an Enneagram moment around yeah, that. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. Well, and then, because threes take in feelings. Mm-hmm. They take in information, yeah. and they take in everything from the mm-hmm. environment with feelings. But then they set them aside. Yeah. So they can, that's why they can see it coming. They see it coming. Without getting caught in it. That's yeah. fascinating. Yeah, and so, like, I'll be in a movie, and a scene's happening, and it's it's... You know, it's ripping me apart. Yeah. And Henry will look over at me, and I'm like, here he goes. He's, he's coming. He's coming. And re- this summer, uh, I think I said, shut up to him, because I was really in the moment with mm-hmm. the movie. And then that hurt him in turn. So 
because at that time, it was uh, Dunkirk, and we went just the two of us, and we were bonded in that moment, and he was with me uh-huh. as a little 15-year-old three. Uh-huh. I'm getting, like, he was w- actually with me that time. Uh-huh. He wasn't trying to manage, but because of all our history, yeah. I was ready for him to manage me, but he wasn't, yeah. and I jumped him, and then he was like, that's why threes set their stuff aside, yeah. right? You all um, interviewed cities to decide where to live. You're the only people I know who did that, <laughs> as it turns out. Really? So I would love for you to talk about what, where were you when you <laughs> decided, let's just interview cities. We, we were living in Manhattan in a really a seventh floor walk up, and I was just gotten pregnant with Alabama. We didn't know it yet. No, I felt like I did. But anyway, um, I just knew that I couldn't be on a seven-floor walk-up with a baby and no laundry room and no grass. Like, I just had to do something. And he always talked about how he loved living in Austin in the 80s. I, I did an internship here in the summer of 1990 with the Texas Resource Project, uh, representing death row inmates, um, which is a whole different story. Anyway, I think it's a good one. Yeah, but yeah. like he love would love, he would love yeah. to tell me that story and that about all of that, yeah. and talk about all the ways in which it was rich for him. But then to make the emotional leap that it might be a good place for us to live, uh-huh. it didn't feel real. Though. That didn't. Yeah, that was not going to happen. So I had to take him. I had to get him there, bridge him there. Got it. And, but that said, we looked at other, we looked at Charleston, we looked at Memphis, we looked, you know, all these other places we even looked in. Boise, Idaho. Yeah. So. Um, New Orleans, Charlotte. Mm-hmm. Charlotte I'm Stone. so glad you chose Austin. <laughs> so I get to know you. But I might have gotten to know you. Yeah, I go to Boise. And, yeah. Um, okay. So uh, then you. So like, why did we decide? Yeah. Well, how, I mean, I don't want to tee off on the other cities exactly, but. One of the things I love about Austin... It would be really good for my podcast if you didn't tee off. Yeah, I'm not going <laughs> to tee off on all the other shits. But, because they're, 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 okay. they're, they're all, they all have amazing things about them that drew me there in the first place. A lot of it being beauty, of course. Yeah. And it's interesting because what I ended up choosing as a four is a city that I was not attracted to aesthetically. Uh-huh. But for other reasons came. So, as a Mississippian that grew up in a place that felt very conforming, right... And then moving to New York, which uh, is a big city, and you're anonymous, and you can do whatever you want, but there's also a really intense striving there mm-hmm. that everyone's trying. There's a real particular triangle, and the point of the triangle is obvious, and everyone's trying to get to that point. So after living in those two places, what struck me about Austin is the fact that it's this big, kind of nebulous place and it lacks rigor and it lacks standards and that's a problem for me but the trade-off is everyone's just kind of doing what they're doing and there's not a lot of striving there's not a lot of conformity and so everybody's just doing their thing and that is freedom that feels good to me it's not beautiful interesting people kind of do some lame things from time to time but but it but it is it is a it is a it's an artistically vibrant town, it is, too. Yeah. And it's a very, um, I mean, very open. I mean, people invite you into their houses, and it's very socially open and um, not socially competitive the way That's New right. York is. Right. New York is extremely socially competitive. And, you know, I think... Dallas. Dallas, yeah. maybe, Jackson. is to some extent. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I thought Jackson is intensely conformist. Um, um, so that was really appealing to us. Okay, so how long did you live here before, uh, Nathaniel, before your parents moved here? So we moved here in September of 1999, and shortly thereafter, my parents who were living in Cambridge, Massachusetts, told us they were looking to make a move. Um, 2001. So, so they arrived here almost two years after we, about a year and a half after we got here. And how long did they live here before your dad died? Uh, they lived here nine years. ten years, nine almost ten years. Okay, I wanna I, I wanna come back and talk about your mom, how you guys love her and care for her and care about her and are faithful to her. But before we do that, 
one of the first times I ever got to have a conversation with you, you uh, talked about your dad's death and his funeral of sorts. And I have been thinking about that story since, and that's quite a few years ago. And one of the reasons that I've thought about it for so long, and I've often talked about it and said, I don't think any two numbers could walk that through from beginning to end except a four and a five. Mm-hmm. It is the, the best story I've ever heard that perfectly holds together feeling and thinking. Mm-hmm. And it's very important to me right now because I think the whole culture of funerals and all of the things that go on and the business that goes on around that, it's all getting really weird, uh, really weird. So would you be willing just to kind of tell the story of what he wanted and how you got there? And Yeah, yeah, no, I'm happy. To, and I'll, I'll say, so my parents moved here. They were living across the street from us for um, a number of years. My father was an extreme five. My mother, I have no idea. We have no idea. Okay. Um, very complicated person. I, I could guess, but I, yeah, I just... Yeah, no, let's don't guess. So, um, they moved here, and we found out maybe a year or two after they moved here, um, they'd been keeping this a secret. We found out that my mother had early onset Alzheimer's, and... Um, they were hiding that from everybody, and so they were very isolated over there. Okay. Um, do you think it was a secret because your dad was an extreme five? I think it was a secret because my dad was an extreme five, and I think my mother had thrived all her life on the life of the. She was a. She was a reader. She had friends who were poets. She sort of had this salon where she had people. She was friends with Julia Child. And all this was very important to her. I think she was ashamed. I think oh, she was ashamed. Interesting. And did not want to be seen as less than what she had been. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, and Keep he going. was going to protect that. Sure. Then uh, some time went by, and he casually revealed to me that he had been diagnosed with ITF. He called it. So I said, "Well, what's that?" He said, "Oh, you know, it's no big deal." So I went, of course, and mm-hmm. looked it up. Well. <laughs> idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, um, average lifespan after diagnosis, six months. Wow. Um, and he, he told me about this in a very offhand way. Anyway. You know, do you think that that comes from the fact that fives get information and then they just keep it in their heads? Yes. yes. They just keep it there. It's yes. like, it just stays there. It's the most fascinating thing. You know, I have to spend an awful lot of energy getting information to my head. (laughs) (laughs) It stays there if they feel like putting it out in the world would cost them energy, right? So if, you know, he he may get into a lot of details with you about other things that he feels are not going to cost him. He's going to tell you all about some article he read. Got it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But so anyway, so he was diagnosed and he got into a trial program down in Houston and it ended up that he survived a number of years after the initial diagnosis, which was wonderful. When I realized that, oh my gosh, you know, he's actually going to die soon, I had a lot of dread about it because I'd never been through somebody's death at close quarters. And like I was thinking, how is this going to go? This is really scary. And did you dread it? Let's talk about that a little bit yeah. in Five World. Yeah. Um, did you dread not knowing what to do? Did you dread... I dreaded not knowing what to do. I dreaded, you know, what are the emotions going to be around this? I mean, there how's you that, go. Yeah. How's Your everybody? own emotions or everybody else's? Mine and everybody else's. Mm-hmm. Maybe yeah. mostly yours. Maybe mine. Maybe mine most of all. Um, you know, and I have a brother who lives down the street yeah. who's... Um, lives alone and I was worried about how he was going to handle it and he actually was a superstar and it turned into a really beautiful thing I mean we you know there were some rough patches and my father really resisted sort of accepting that this was happening Mm -hmm. Um, and at a certain point 
he shifted and he got past that. And so we were taking meals over every day and having dinner. And we had the most wonderful meals. And really, had the mm-hmm. la- I would say the last year and a half mm-hmm. were really good, really good. You know, I could tell he was really struggling to let go. And one day I sat with him and I said, look, I promise you that I'll take care of mom mm-hmm. and I'll take care of you know, my brother. Mm-hmm. Um, and he let go at that point. You know, it was... My brother came with his family to visit for Christmas, three boys, and my father was on hospice at that point and was taking a lot of morphine. He was slowly suffocating, and um, so we were, you know, had him medicated for sure. that. And every morning he would get up at 7 a.m. and refused, refused to, he set his alarm. It would take him an hour to get out of bed, but he would do it every morning. And the day that my brother and his family left, um, he turned to me and said, I can't do this anymore. So, mm. you know, and we, he was on hospice. So that was the last day. And um, we had really all agreed that he should die at home. There was no reason to take them to the hospital. And um, it was beautiful. I mean, we, so we were together the last day and we were playing music. And um, So where did, what made it beautiful? You know, you all have heard me talk so much, so you know that my language would be set the table. And I I certainly don't want this to be... I I don't want it to be wrong, first of all, (laughs) frankly. But I I can't quite imagine the fives that I have loved well, that I know well, being able to manage their own feelings, deal with all of this, and then set the table for beautiful things to happen. Well, I couldn't have done it without Elizabeth. Right. So. And I, I want to say that the reason I was able to do it, I mean, maybe partly being a four, but also I just read a book called Here If, Here if You Need Me. That is such a good book. And that book changed my life yeah. around death. Yeah. And I will never look at death the same way again. And so because I had just read that book, I knew that... There was nothing we had to do. Like, he could be at home with us. He could stay at home after he died with us. We could wash his body. Mm-hmm. We could light candles. We could go to the place where he was going to be have his ashes, and we could be with that experience. And so from the moment it happened all the way through to the um, service, it was important to me that we were utterly present to all of it, mm-hmm. to his body, to the beauty of his life, to the ceremony of it, mm-hmm. and to not give that away mm-hmm. to a funeral home, mm-hmm. to some person picking him up, mm-hmm. to some Southern tradition that you have a funeral within the week, mm-hmm. all that stuff. I just held it away, and I, I, I held this huge space for people from New York to fly down and have the house to themselves to cry over him and whatever needed to happen. And Elizabeth was ferocious about and holding that away. Ferocious was, because yeah. you have to be ferocious. Right. Because our culture is telling you all these things that right. you have to do and you don't have to do any of them. The whole thing was, I mean, it's an odd word, but it was exhilarating. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it felt like a birth in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. It was this transition, and it was a transition at the end of the life instead of at the beginning mm-hmm. of a life. Mm-hmm. But it was equally beautiful and, and in some ways equally exhilarating that we were part of it and so closely and without all this other stuff crowding in. Um, and don't you think it could be for... In most circumstances, yes, it could be. And what was so revealing to me is there is nothing to be afraid of. It's okay. It's okay. One of the things that I think is so extraordinarily important about it is that, you know, from my work around Enneagram and grieving, that what I learned is if, if you don't grieve in real time when things are really happening, then with every day that passes, your ability to truly grieve is diminished. And so I think, and this is very bold for me to say, and it certainly could be wrong, but I think when we don't do any grieving in real time, which we are culturally set up not to do, mm-hmm. right? I think when we don't do any grieving in real time, 
then what we really what what we do later that we count as grief is regret that we didn't grieve. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's grieving, and I think it's costing us. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's uh, let's switch gears a little bit. Um, let's talk about what you wish. First, of all, I want to talk about this. I want you to tell me what you think most people uh, would, how most people would describe your number. <laughs> Not you. Right, right, right. But your number. Most people who know the Enneagram, somebody says, well, what's a five? What's a four? Oh, yeah. Everyone always says, fours are creative, and they love to be unique, and they're real, uh, you know, so they say all the, the kind of positive uh, creative stuff, and then they go on about how, what a pain in the ass we are, basically. And that's, so that's what you think. That's, I mean, that's what I, I hear is yes. like, yay for the creativity yeah. and boo for the, the emotional mm-hmm. volatility. Mm-hmm. And boy, do you have a child that's four? Oh, I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, you know, she threw that in because I said that once. <laughs> she was in the back of the room and she sat up and looked at me. <laughs> I've said it since. <laughs> All right. What do you think people say about um, five? How do they describe fives? Information gatherers, uh-huh. um, readers. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't hear a lot of negative. I mean, Elizabeth, I think, gets a lot more negative sure. feedback on her number. I mean, you know, I would say the most negative thing I hear about fives is you can be overly detached, which is a fair criticism. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. such a mental thing to say. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. right. I hear it all the time. From yeah, right, right, so, right, yeah, right. It's probably good for me to hear. Joe, Joe is leading an Enneagram journey at the church. You know, mm-hmm. he's using the curriculum. Oh, to lead the oh group. good, good. And uh, he told me the other night that the some people in his group said, can we just go home with you Aww. and just get tutoring? And he said, I said, what'd you say? And he said, I told him it's not that much fun. <laughs> <laughs> The funny thing about being detached as a five is you don't realize you're detached because you're so in your head. You think you know the story I told about yeah. it's pouring out about yeah, yeah. everybody <laughs> must know that I sort of know how they feel, right? Yeah. But yeah, no, I'm in my head, and they so I, I have to remind myself that while I may be swimming in my thoughts yeah. and even my feelings, your skin people, is a permanent barrier. People around me, I'm trapped in my skull-sized <laughs> kingdom, right? Right. Totally. Uh, so, um, how do you describe a four and a five? Uh, well, fours, I think, number one, they will um, deal with whatever it is so that it's true and authentic. So, if that means uh, a fight, if that means everybody's going to get mad at each other. Like, it's never peace at all costs. Like, a nine is peace at all costs. It's never peace at all costs. Ever. Not because you don't want peace. Mm-hmm. You do want peace. But you want more than peace. You want it to be true and authentic and real. And like, you know, how you always say that we take sad and we decorate it. And we mm-hmm. take happy. Do we take happy and decorate it? Do we? Okay. Um, <laughs> more. I don't see, like, I think, a, but I was saying to you earlier, like, I think a healthy four it's not about decorating your sadness and your happiness. It's that that is what you see happening. That's what's happening in your mind, in your in the, your capacity to know what reality is, which mm-hmm. is always flawed. But if that's what's happening, you want to honor the reality that's in front of you. If that means it's sad, it's sad. Mm-hmm. If that means it's happy, it's happy. If that means it's uh, going to cause strife, mm-hmm. it's going to cause strife. And when people try to say to me, you can't do that. Then it just feels like you're selling out. Is your answer from your soul, I can't not do it? You can't not do right. it. You can't not do it. And so what you get back from that is you're too much, right? You're too sensitive. You're too much. All that. Okay. Which we are. I get it. But... but you really are just striving to honor the reality as you see it. And you're, you're tr- striving to honor your engagement with other people and that being real and connected. And people don't necessarily want that. One of the things that's very interesting to me about fours is that when people and people say to fours consistently, you're too much. I have never heard a four 
are heard of a four saying back, you're not enough. A four saying that to, to somebody else? That, to somebody. Oh, my God. And boy, would we love to, by the way. Okay, that's what I want to talk about. I kind of want to say that to every. That's so not nice. <laughs> but, I mean, you do. You do. I mean, it's kind of, it's the thing that you have to work on is that you're disappointed by that constantly. But. You you know you say you can measure your health by how often you're offended. Yeah, a four can probably measure their health by how often they're disappointed in people. Oh. So if you go around being disappointed all the time by everybody's, you're getting off on how engaged you are. Oh yeah, and all that you're bringing to the table, and how no one else is willing to be that interesting or complex or whatever. <laughs> that that's that is a really dangerous road to go down. Because you're using your specialness and making it an excuse to not be balanced and not actually be present. That's all I got right now. Okay, what you got about fives? Um, am I supposed to describe fives. how I view? Okay, yeah. So, yeah. Okay, so, so we've talked about how the world yeah, views fives. Right. Let's talk so, about go okay. in there. So uh, <laughs> you're, being, you're being too much. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I would say that one of the aspects of being a five, living in the skull of a five, is that you know I tend to be able to see different sides of something and sort of understand how different people perceive a particular situation, or, which is really great on one hand, but on the other hand, it can be paralyzing because mm. I, mm. Um, it can it can contribute to my doing repression because. You know, I may be mad at somebody, but I can sort of see their side of it too. Mm-hmm. So I just better shut up. Mm-hmm. You're right. So that's that's one aspect of being a five, and that's probably reinforced by I'm really reluctant to assert my needs or desires because I think you know I just sort of inherently think that's just aggressive and I shouldn't do that. Do you know why? Like. Why do you think it's aggressive? That's my first question. My second question is, why is it hard to say what you need? Why is it hard to say what I need? Um, I'm sure Elizabeth could give a great answer to that. Yeah, but, but I'm not going to let her. No, You're just no. going to have to give it. I can't. I can't. It's the, it's the million-dollar question. Fives um, don't think it's okay to ask for what they need or are hesitant to ask for what they need because of reciprocity mm, that 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 rings more true for me it um, it gets messy we've talked for quite a while and I I would just say that one of the things I treasure about my time with you two is that this is what we usually do when I'm here mm-hmm. it's not so much me asking questions as all of us talking about what we wish was true, what we know to be true, what we <laughs> hope could be true one day, and all of that. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to, sadly, because the time's up, close, I'm going to do it with a question that I think is perhaps one of the most important Enneagram questions that I'll ever ask. And that is, I'd like for each one of you to share what you wish people knew about your number. And keep in mind that I know that your number is you. But I want you to answer more broadly. Okay. I want you to answer with what you wish people knew about your number. Yeah. I'll go first. Okay. So I would say, I would say for me personally, and probably for many fives, the thing I wish people knew is that if I show up, I'm in. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, fives aren't necessarily, I, I and other fives aren't necessarily good at explaining that emotionally. Right. Tell, explaining our... But if we show up, we're in. And if, you know, so if everybody knew that and could see into our heads, mm-hmm. into our thoughts. Um, that's so great. I've never heard a five say that. And that's so great because it's like you chose to give up that amount of energy to show up. You're here. It's like I'm, I'm in. Mm-hmm. I, if, and that's if you show up for a conversation or if you show up for an event. <laughs> right? right. Or you talk, you're talking about both, right? Right. 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 Yeah. Or yeah. marriage. Or a parenting uh, or... Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't need to tell you I love you because I'm here. Yeah. Isn't it obvious? <laughs> I don't know how that works with 
a heart-centered person, but you can go for it. Yeah, well, thank, thanks to the Enneagram. You know, sometimes Joe will say, I'll say, do you love me? And he'll say, as a nine, he'll say, haven't I already told you today? <laughs> like that works. Right, I know. Yeah, it's crazy. All right, what do you wish, Elizabeth? I wish that when fours are being, you know, be, being perceived as too much and being aggressive or being whatever, um, that people realize that it is a, an attempt to connect, an attempt to draw that person out, an attempt to feel alive and to feel the blood flow between us. And so when that goes bad, is um, usually people just stop. They just say, oh my, I don't want any of that, and so they go. Or she's being so aggressive, or that opinion, I completely disagree with that, and then she makes me so mad. And if it's kind of, it's similar to AIDS in that if people would just say, I mean, if people would just say, I disagree with that, or why are you doing that, or why do you feel that way, I'm going to go all along with you, and you may even change my mind. You know? mm-hmm. uh, not because I don't believe what I said initially, but a lot of the times I think fours are just almost like feeling on the go. Oh, you know, we're taking the pulse all the time. So if you bring me with you, I, I'm going to go if I believe you. And it's it and I it's easy for me to get there, but you have to take me with yeah. you. And then also, if there's people who just don't want to go there with me. Nobody's going to do this, but what I would love is if people say, you know what, I'm just kind of coasting through here. Mm-hmm. I don't like it that way. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, we can. I can see you at parties and stuff, and we can do this little chit-chat thing, but that's all I want from you, sister. Uh-huh. And, I, I mean, it would hurt, but it would be so awesome, too. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. then I'd know. Because yeah. I always have to learn the hard way with those people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you and me. <laughs> the difference in you and me, I don't know, though. You might do the same thing. If somebody did say to me, you know, we can chit-chat when I see you, but that's really all I want, mm-hmm. would you, what would you say then? Would you just say, okay? Yeah, I'd say, oh, man. I'd say, okay, and then I'd mental note to myself. And then, and then it's like, talk about banking. Like, then I would know where to give myself away mm-hmm. because, I mean, all the art stuff saying it's easy, right? Uh, doing the art, being authentic. Knowing how you feel, all those things that force do, it is, it is exhausting and it is a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And you kind of give that to everybody, and we need to know like who to give it to. <laughs> we don't know that. Uh, well, m- my uh, affection and care for you continues to grow with every encounter and every year that passes, and I'm thankful for um, every conversation we've ever had. Thank you for this. I hope we'll do it again. Thank you, Julian. Thank you for having us. The Enneagram Journey podcast is produced by Life in the Trinity Ministry. Music is provided by Solve Lighthow. Professional photography is courtesy of Courtney Perry. We invite you to visit theenneagramjourney.org for more information. And we welcome your questions and comments. Thank you for being with us today.